How's it? It's good to be with you guys. It's, uh, it's been a while, but I'm so stoked to uh, be with you and uh, get to share one last time before uh, my wife and I and our son Judah, we're immigrating to Australia, and uh, it's just such a privilege to, to get to preach one last time before we go. Um, I'm continuing our series uh, today. And uh, in the first uh, two weeks, we covered some great ground. So just as a, a recap, in the first week, Roscoe spoke about this, becoming like Jesus. Uh, if you don't think that that's the most phenomenal thing ever, then you don't know who Jesus is. Because the fact that we can become like him is just extraordinary. And God has given us the resources of heaven for, to make that a reality. Uh, and then last week, we dealt with this one, living a life of worship. And uh, a life of worship means a life that brings glory to God um, and really honors His name. And what I get to dig into today is this, is that God has called every single one of us to live a life where we make disciples. That making disciples is an intentional part of being a Christian. And so there's uh, essentially what a disciple is, is the combination of these two, becoming like Jesus and living a life of worship. But not only do we get to be a disciple, but we also get to make disciples. And so that's what I'm going to be speaking about today. And the whole concept is that these different pillars are a part of a house, that you get to get to be the pillars or the foundations of your life. And when you do this, you get to find God's will for your life. So I'm going to be dealing with three things. I just want to speak a little bit into the concept of what is a disciple. And then I want to speak about uh, how this has always been God's plan for the world. This isn't a plan that's just, you know, to, for today in the 21st century. It's not just a plan during COVID. It's not just a plan uh, during the modern era. It's not just, actually, it hasn't just been a plan since the coming of Jesus. It's always been God's plan to make disciples. And then the third thing is how God's invited you to be part of that plan. So let's get into the first one. What is a disciple? And I'm going to use a bit of an analogy here in terms of uh, my relationship to my wife and I suppose a romantic relationship to speak about the process of becoming a disciple and therefore the process of making disciples. Okay, so um, we gave a shout out to an amazing couple, the Elsons. Uh, Elson Seniors have been married for 44 years this week, which is amazing. And at that moment when they were speaking about this amazing couple that had an anniversary this week, I thought they were going to speak about my, me and my wife, Teresa, because yesterday was our 10-year anniversary. But apparently, which is awesome, but apparently you've got to get to 44 years before you get a shout-out around here. But no problem, like I'm not competing. Uh, it's good for us, you know, on a different level. Um, so here's the thing, is like when, when Teresa and I first got to know each other. It was actually on a tour. We were on like a, a tour in Israel. And she had come from New Zealand, and I was living in Israel at the time. And I was leading the tour. And when you're on tour in Israel, you do a lot of walking. And you walk everywhere. You probably walk 10, 15 k's a day sometimes. And, uh, and what we found is that my, Teresa, it wasn't my wife then, but uh, we were always walking together at the front of the group. We're both fast walkers. And so because we were both fast walkers, we ended up chatting a lot because we were always leading. I was a tour leader. I had to be in the front, and she uh, is, is quite uh, nimble and fast on her feet. Uh, and so we were always walking together, and so we got chatting a lot. And it's, it's just, I suppose, it's a, a bit of a precursor because they actually found, and this is a well-known fact, that partners, people who are in a romantic, long-term romantic relationship, partners actually synchronize their footsteps when they walk. It's a subconscious thing, but when you're walking together with a partner, you actually uh, synchronize your footsteps. You start to mirror each other's uh, body posture, 
uh, as you communicate, and even friends do this. And within relationships, I mean romantic, long-term relationships, what happens is that at a subconscious level, facial features start to mimic one another during the course of a marriage so that in the long term, um, your partners start to look like one another, which is really good news for most of us men because we all admit that our wives are better looking than us. Which is not like, I'm not, I'm not bummed. If someone comes to me and says, your wife's better looking than you, it's like, that's a compliment to me, you know? Um, but the, it's an amazing thing that, uh, that, that we start to actually, at a very subconscious level, look like one another. And then they've recently discovered, and there were a team of uh, scientists from different parts of the world, and they're researching long-term marriages between husbands and wives, and they found that when a, when a wife's in pain and her husband touches her as a sign of affection, um, the heart rates and their respiratory systems start to synchronize with one another at a subconscious level. How weird that your heart starts to beat at the same rate as the other person, and your respiratory, your breathing system, uh, synchronizes with the other person, and as a result, it reduces or decreases the woman's sense of pain. I mean, that's, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind, that all of this is happening. We don't even know it's happening. We're not making it happen. It just happens at a very subconscious, intuitive level. Um, and there's a whole host of findings on the physical and mental health of spouses and how we affect one another and is really a good thing to be in these long-term relationships. And God has created a relational life so in such a profound way that we affect one another in all sorts of ways that we grow into what the Bible calls a sense of oneness, of commitment and connection and intimacy as we spend time together. And that is exactly God's plan for us. God's plan for us is that we're intimately connected with Him, that we spend huge amounts of time with Him, and literally the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, so He's with us all the time, and that we slowly become like Him, just like spouses look like one another and, and grow together in oneness, so we begin to look like God and we grow together in oneness. And there's different stages of a relationship. And for those of us who have been married like 10 years or I suppose any really more than two years, you know that there's different stages. So in the, the beginning stage is this initial falling in love experience. And this is so much about what Hollywood and you know, movies and, and popular culture speaks about, this kind of intoxicating experience of falling in love. And I can remember, uh, again, those moments of walking with Teresa where, where you, you kind of realize something's going on. And, and you feel good about it. And, uh, and that whole experience of falling in love where you're like, I can't believe there's someone that's that interested in me and I'm interested in them and, and I'm with them. Like, I feel alive. And I was like, certain things, like she could just, you know, the, the way she walked, if I was walking behind her, I mean, not like I was looking, cause, but I, I was a little bit. And anyway, like, the way her hips moved, I would just be like, intoxicated. It's like, it's amazing, right? Because people are laughing. You're like, oh, well, that's a little bit awkward. But God designed that. He designed us to be captivated by these things. It's a part of the process of growing together. And there's this powerful concoction of hormones and, and chemistry and brain activity that's going on that makes you feel like you're in love. And that journey normally lasts for about two years before it starts to fade. I mean, not for me in my marriage, but other, apparently other marriages, um, about two years on average. And then you find yourself in this process where you've got to choose to love the person and this experience of choosing to move towards them and build a life together. And there's, uh, what I've found is that, that my wife and I were different. 
and that she would do stuff I didn't understand and that I would do stuff she didn't understand and, and, and that we had to figure out those differences. And you know what's interesting that, is that so often in the falling in love experience, when like, the person's so different from you and it's amazing, and later, the, the same differences which were amazing and intoxicating all of a sudden are a little bit frustrating. You know, because like in the beginning, it's like, oh, you know, when we're together, we just talk so much. And then later, it's like, you just talk so much. Like in the beginning, it's like, oh, they're such a fiery, passionate person. And then afterwards, later, it's just like, oh, this person's fiery and passionate. Uh, sometimes against me, not just with me. So like that doesn't always work in your favor. Uh, and, and so there's all these things that, that what used to intoxicate us now, is we've got to actually work through. And we've got to adapt our behavior. And there's a guy called Gary Chapman. He wrote a famous book called The Five Love Languages. And this is just one example. But he speaks about the fact that, that there's five ways that people communicate love to one another. Uh, different ways, different languages of love. So the first is physical touch, which, like, I don't know, like every bloke is like, amen. Uh, but it's actually not just like a sexual thing. It's actually just like the showing of affection through physical touch, through hugging and, and just being together. There's the the uh, gift or the language of quality time, just being with someone and being in their presence where they're the most interesting uh, thing to you, I suppose. Uh, there's the language of gifts, the giving of gifts, uh, acts of service where you want to serve the other person and do things for them, and then words of affirmation, which is you actually speak over them who they are and what they mean to you. And so my top two uh, love languages, because what Gary Chapman says, people generally have a dominant love language and a, like a secondary one. My dominant love language is quality time. And my second one is physical touch. So literally, I am a cat. It's like Teresa will be working or doing something, and I'll just nestle up to her, and I'll be like, just stroke me, baby, but like, just like affectionate. Um, and and uh, I just want to be in her presence, and that's how I communicate love to her. But her top two are the giving of gifts and acts of service, which means she can come home, I've got flowers on the table, and I've cleaned the kitchen, and she's like, my husband loves me so much. I'm a quality time person. I haven't even been in her presence. She feels loved, and I'm feeling like, oh, but where's my, find me interesting, baby. Be with me. You know, it's like quality time people, like if you're driving in the car and the person's on their phone, what's happening? Like you're devastated. You're like, oh, I thought I was much more interested in whatever's going on in your phone. Um, and, and so what we, I found with my wife is that we're different and we actually had to choose to give the other person what they needed in order for them to feel good rather than do what makes me feel good. You see, because in the intoxicating phase of a relationship, you just feel good all by yourself, but then you actually have to start choosing to meet the other person's needs. And what happens is, is you find in marriage, the more you do that, the more you choose to serve the other person, the better it is for you. There are surprising benefits to this. It deepens the relationship. It strengthens the relationship. The sense of connection grows. And let me tell you, a relationship that's in that space is far healthier than in the intoxicating space. There's nothing wrong with the intoxicating space, the early stage of a relationship. But if your marriage is in trouble, you're not going to find someone that's been, you know, married for three months and saying, how do you do this? How do you keep this? You're going to be to go find the people that have been married for 50 years that worked through all of this stuff and figured out how to love the person in a way that they need and build connection over the long haul. Because that's the more beautiful, wise, profound sense of connection and intimacy that has lasted the test of time. 
And I want to make an analogy now between that relationship and our relationship with God. When we come to Jesus Christ, we meet Jesus, and it's intoxicated. I remember going, I can't believe there's a God out there. I can't believe he loves me. I can't believe he knows my name. I can't believe he's forgiven me of my sins. I come to church. I come to a time of worship, and I feel his presence. I remember I had sold all my doors and Radiohead CDs. And I took the money and I went and bought a new Christian CD by Delirious. And I'd come home and I put it in the CD player. Remember, like young people don't know what I'm talking about. Well, it was this little round shiny thing you used to put in a tray and it made music. And I remember being in my bedroom and just playing this worship music and the sense of God's presence being there and being completely intoxicated with Jesus. It was amazing. But as I journeyed with Jesus, I found that there were other parts of my relationship that I actually had to choose to engage with him on because they weren't natural for me. It's not natural for me to find, to, to use acts of service and the giving of gifts to love my wife. And it's not always natural to follow Jesus the way he asks sometimes because Jesus says things like this. Hey, if you want to stop worrying about money, give some away. It's the principle of tithing and giving. That's not natural. And I remember going, well, I'm either going to trust you on this and do this, or I'm going to fight and try and keep it in control. But the more you fight, the more you sense like you can't trust God. And what God wants us to do is live in a, a place of trust and intimacy. And what you do is you, you choose to embrace God's way of life, and it ministers to you. Let's bring it back to the thing of marriage. God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Wives, respect your husbands. That's the instructions of God's word. And I remember uh, there's times where you're like, look, I don't feel like giving up my life for my wife, but that's what Jesus asks me to do. And as you do that, the grace of God flows and you sense this connection and it's far deeper and more profound than anything I had as a young believer. Why? Because I, I know he's trustworthy. So God chooses a type of relationship that maximizes trust because here's the thing is the whole sense of connection is built on trust. Trust is the currency of a relationship. You can only be as connected to a person as much as, as much as you trust them. And so God chooses a type of relationship to maximize trust, intimacy, and connection to speed up this process of becoming one or becoming a disciple. What is that type of relationship? It's called a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is the formalizing of a relationship where both parties understand what to expect of the other. And again, the best example we have of this in our world is marriage. You see, there's a big difference between a test-run, trial-based relationship and entering to a covenant with someone. There's a big difference between dating as a side hustle, where you're dating a person, but most people in your life don't know that you're dating them. Maybe your closest friends do and then going Facebook official. There's a difference. There's a difference between Facebook official and going to meet that person's parents. There's a difference between meeting those person's parents and going to meet them one day and ask, could I have your daughter's hand in marriage? There's a difference between that. And there's a difference between asking for their hand in marriage and inviting all your friends and family to an event where you stand in front of them and you make them a covenant I'm going to love you for better or worse, in sickness and health, for richer or poorer. According to the instructions in God's word, I'm going to love you and honor you until death do us part. There's a difference. 
And what a covenant is, is that last bit where you stand up and you exchange these vows and saying, you and you alone, you for as long as I live. And that's the type of relationship that God makes with his people. It's a no escape clause for better or worse, come hell or high water, I'm committed to you and I'm going to love you. And the reason he does this is because covenant enables trust to build. What happens when you make a covenant with your spouse is that at some point along the road, generally speaking, that thing gets tested. There is better and worse. There is richer and poorer. There is sickness and health. And what happens is as people, we're going, hey, well, maybe if I'm sick or poor or in worse condition, maybe you're going to stop loving me. And over the years where that person continues to love, continues to be committed to their covenant, it builds trust where they go, I know I can trust you that you're going to be there for me no matter what. And that's the kind of relationship that God makes with people. And God makes a series of covenants throughout his Bible. I'm going to summarize those for you just now. But I think this is such a big deal because I think when, when most people think about God's will for their life. They feel like it could be a little bit random, a little bit haphazard, as if, like, God's just got this kind of plan here, that kind of plan there. They don't all work together. They're not all the same thing. Because what happens, I think, is people read the Bible, and they feel like God changes a lot. So, for example, people read the Old Testament, and they go, yo, God's angry here. Like, if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah... Like, there's a lot of hectic stuff that God says there. In fact, most of the prophets and a lot of the Old Testament, and there's God kills people in the Old Testament and, and takes them out, and you, you read that, and you're going, yo, that's quite hectic. And all of a sudden, we get into the New Testament, and there's the angels singing peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And you're like, what happened? Like, he's killing people here, and then peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Did God change? No, God was changing the covenant, and I explained that just now. God chooses, in the Old Testament, God chooses Israel to be his people. He chooses them to be a nation amongst nations. And the nation is called to display who he is to the world. And in the New Testament, it's the church. So did God unchoose Israel? Can God unchoose the church? Or reject the church? Then in the Old Testament, there's the law. And there's all these laws. And people are judged on the basis of basis of how they keep the law. And then the New Testament says, well, we're dead to the law and we're not under the law, but we're under grace. So what happened? Why did God give something to people and then they had to die for it and it no longer matters? Or does it matter? Because then Romans says, actually, God's put the law in our hearts, but we're dead to it. So it's, and then a last example of how it appears like God changes, you get David in the Old Testament, who God describes as a man after his own heart. But David killed whole villages, and he had multiple wives and concubines. Does that mean today, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can kill whole villages and have multiple wives and concubines? And I don't know why you'd want to do either of those things. One is enough. But how come that's a man after God's own heart, but if I go and do those things, it feels like I'm not a Christian and the opposite of a Christian, and yet... He loved God and God loved him. And so all these apparent contradictions would frame something in people's mind where they feel like God is a little bit haphazard with his plans. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize the plans of God. Because what I want you to know is that there's nothing further from the truth. God has only ever had one plan for the world. He's never changed it. 
He's never come up with a plan B. He's never had to go, oh, no, this isn't working out. I better come up with a new plan. And God has never changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same God in the Old Testament is the same God as the New, and the, the God of the New Testament is the same in the Old. It's just that he's relating to people based on different covenants that he made with people. And you've got to be able to, to for me, this was a major problem as a young believer because it, I struggled to trust God in the space of just believing that he would never change. And um, God's plan has always been that people, he would have a people that become like Jesus, become like him. Remember, Jesus is the perfect, the, the clearest revelation of who God is, that a people that become like him and are involved in worship and go on to help other people become like him, get involved in the process of making disciples. The first covenant that God makes is with Adam. And God says to Adam, hey, the fruit of the tree, all the trees of the, the, the garden you can eat, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And of course, they go and eat from that tree. And the death is described in a bunch of different ways. Yes, there's physical death. There's spiritual death, brokenness between humanity and God. And I don't know if you noticed, but that still exists in the world today because God said it would. People still struggle with God. There's pain in childbirth. Apparently, that's still a thing. There's um, work becomes difficult, becomes cursed. I don't know about you, but generally speaking, like work is rewarding, but it's also a difficult thing that can be broken in a sense. And there's broken relationships between men and women. The, the relationship between the genders gets broken, and we're seeing the expression of that in our world in new ways that I suppose we haven't seen in our, our lifetime before. The sense of this brokenness, this death that enters into the world. And the amazing thing is the effects of a broken covenant are still at place in the world today. The second covenant God makes is with Noah. What happens is the world becomes so wicked and so evil that God looks upon the, the earth and he, he grieves that he made mankind. It's a terrifying verse. It's a heartbreaking verse. And so God sends a flood to destroy everyone because he can't see this. But it says, but Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of God. And so God saves Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons and their three wives, eight people in all. And when they come off the ark, Noah offers a sacrifice to God and says, God sends a rainbow. And God says, never again will I destroy mankind off the face of the earth. You know, it, it, despite what Hollywood, you know, all Hollywood says of all these meteorites coming and tidal waves and all these things, never again has mankind been destroyed off the face of the earth. And the rainbow is still in place, so God's covenant still holds good. And this is the covenant that committed Jesus to the cross because God had to deal with sin, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So the way God had to deal with sin now is that he had to send, he couldn't destroy all of us because he said he wouldn't, so he had to send his son to die for us so that he could free us from the wages of sin, death. The next covenant God makes is with a man called Abraham, and he says three things to him. He says, number one, I will make you into a nation. And the nation of Israel comes from Abraham. Number two, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a physical country. The nation of Israel is that land. And number three, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And that is a prophecy that Jesus is going to come to the earth and uh, bring blessing to the whole world. And he came through the seed of Abraham. That's what the Bible teaches. And we're going to start digging into Scripture here. And so, because I want you to be able to see how consistent God is to his word. Genesis 17, 7 to 8. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you. 
your descendants after you from generation to generation. God's going to make himself a people. This is the everlasting covenant. Like, think of a sure promise like a marriage covenant that can never be broken. This is the everlasting covenant, my everlasting promise to you. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a stranger, as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever. I will be their God. So three things. Number one, God says I'm going to give you, uh, make you a promise and be your God to your descendants and your descendants after you. And this is where the nation of Israel comes to play. And the nation of Israel still exists in the world. The Babylonians don't. The Moabites don't. The Egyptians, like they were then, it's called the same place, but they're not the same people. There's no nation really that exists from that time other than the people of Israel because God said they will be my people. The second thing he says, I'm going to give you a land. And there's this people still living in that land despite all the odds. And that still exists today. And here's the amazing thing. He says, look at that last line there. It says, it will be a possession forever and I will be their God. See, the heart of God is this. I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will be God to you and you'll be my people. You'll actually look like me, like becoming a disciple. I want to look like Jesus. So when I say, when we talk about becoming like Jesus, we're actually reiterating the call of God that was first mentioned to Abraham 4,000 years ago, that I will be their God and they will be my people. They're actually going to look like me, like we look like Jesus is looking like God. The next covenant God makes is with Israel. And he says, I'm going to choose you as a nation. And again, that's still in place today. That nation still exists. I'm going to give you my laws. And those laws still exist today. In fact, those laws became the foundation of the Western legal system. If you obey, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey, you'll be cursed. And we can look at the history of Israel. And I can't see a people that has been more blessed. If you think of their financial prosperity and their influence on the world, or been more cursed, if you think of the suffering that they've gone through. And what I'm referencing is ancient covenants God made 4,000 years ago in the case of Abraham, longer with Noah, longer still with Adam, that we still see playing out in the world today. And this is what God says to the people of Israel once he's brought them out of Egypt. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, there's that word, my covenant, you will be my own special treasure. You will be my people from among all the peoples on earth, for all the nations, all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. He's saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. And then God makes another covenant with David. And his promise to David is that he's going to give him a son on the throne of Israel forever. And that this everlasting dynasty of kings is going to bring peace to the whole earth. And this is the one covenant we're still waiting for the fulfillment of. Because this is what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Because you might go, well, who's the king of Israel now? His name is Jesus. And he's seated on the throne of heaven. And when he comes back to the earth, he's going to bring peace to the whole earth. And in Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24, the prophet is speaking about this covenant. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, bear in mind, Ezekiel is prophesying after David has died. So the servant David isn't referencing David, but David's son or seed, as the Bible speaks about, Jesus. And he, 
shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It's this picture of a righteous king and a righteous government coming for the benefit of the people. Ezekiel 34, verse 30, which is a few verses later, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. You see the heart of God again? I will be their God and they will be my people. And then we come to Jesus and the new covenant. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because this is important. But the prophet Jeremiah, he prophesied uh, that God was going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of God. He says this, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's that phrase again. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never remember again, never again remember their sins. There's two promises here in, in this new covenant that Jesus makes. Number one, that God will never remember our sins. If you are part of this new covenant with Jesus, which if you're a believer in Jesus, you are, God will never remember your sins. That's what he promised. Like he was standing at the front of an aisle, making a promise to a spouse, that's his promise to you. The second thing is that I will put my instructions deep within them and write them on their hearts. Not only, you see, the problem with the law under, under Israel, the covenant made with Israel, which the Bible goes on to describe the old covenant, is that it was an external command meant to change their heart, but it couldn't. And so God says, I'm actually going to change their heart. And when you look at the Bible, the Bible is actually described as the Old and New Testament. And another word for testament is covenant. It's literally the Old and New Covenants. And then Jesus comes along and he says on the last night that he was betrayed, when the whole crucifixion journey starts, he says, after supper, he, that's Jesus, took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice to you. Can you imagine being there that night, and they're going, we've been waiting for 700 years since Jeremiah prophesied that the new covenant is coming, and Jesus just said it's here. God's never going to remember your sins. God's going to change your heart, change you from the inside out. And that's what we come into. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Communion together as a church, we're celebrating the new covenant because that's our covenant, our connection point. That's the definition of our relationship with God. And I want to show you another verse here, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 to 6. Paul says, we are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of this new covenant. So here's the thing, two things that happens. Number one, I am a part of this new covenant, this relationship, covenantal relationship where God stood before all heaven, before all earth, before all angelic and demonic powers, and before all of my sin and mess, and said, you, I will never remember your sins. and I will change you from the inside out. That's his promise to me. And then he says, I get to be a minister of that new covenant. Every follower of Jesus gets to minister, which means serve that new covenant into the life of other people. And the whole point of this, and look, he says, he's qualified you. You know what? Next time you see a rainbow, say, that rainbow has stood for thousands of years as a sign of the covenant, and the same God has qualified me to minister this covenant to other people. 
Well, I don't feel qualified. Well, your feelings have lasted for about 15 seconds. His covenants have lasted for thousands of years. Choose which one you focus on. And we look here at Revelation chapter 21 where, where Jesus comes back and fulfills the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. And he said, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. The heart of God, I'm going to have a people that look like me and make my home with them, that live lives of worship and help other people to become like me. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from his eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. God's plan to save us was evident in God's covenant with Adam. It was evident in God's covenant with Noah. It's evident in God's covenant with Abraham. It's evident in God's covenant with Israel. It's evident in God's covenant with David. It's evident in God's covenant and the new covenant made by Jesus. It's lasted for thousands of years. And the only question left is, do you want to be a part of his plan? You see, when we come to Jesus Christ, we join the family business. And the family business is that we're going to make disciples. We're going to help make people a people that look like Jesus so that God can be our God and we can be his people. We can give expression to his heart, his will on the earth. And this is such an important idea, and I'm just going to sidetrack for a little bit. This is such an important idea that if you don't understand the way God joins the whole Bible together in one plan, you lose confidence in who God is. That I actually wrote a book on it. It's called Faithful, and the whole idea is that God is faithful, that he never changes. He's got one plan, and he's completely faithful through this. And it's over here. Faithful, how God bound himself to humanity with seven eternal covenants. And if you've heard the story of covenants and you've gone, that's cool. I've done that in 15 minutes or 10 minutes, maybe a bit longer. This is 178 pages and there's so much more detail in God's beautiful plan that you're now a part of. The only question left is, do you want to be part of his plan? Do you want to make your life about what Jesus is about? You see, when you you choose to say, hey, actually, I want to make disciples. I want to make people that look like God and be a part of a people that look like God so that he can be our God and we can be his people. This thousands of years plan. What you do is you jump into the river of God's history of salvation and you swept along with it. And in that river is provision and blessing and fullness and life and abundance. But what we do is we go, well, well let me get my, my provision sorted out. Let me make sure I've got my money thing sorted out. Let me make sure I've got my abundance thing sorted out. Do I have enough friends? Am I married? Do I have kids? Let me just get all of these things sorted out. And if I've got any left time, leftover time, I'm going to get in that river that's flowing. When you join the family business, you've got to be about that business. It's like joining... You know, Apple and saying, hey, I really want to make cars. Like, that's not what we do here. <laughs> Go join a different company if that's what you want to do. And the question is, 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 do you want your life to be about what God's about, which is making disciples? And that every part of your life is about that. And, and here's the thing is, when you do that, God makes you a promise that he'll work out his plan for you. You see, we all want to know, God, what's your specific plan for me? 
And God's going, here's my plan for the world. Do you want to be a part of it? And when we jump into that and we say yes, he begins to work out a specific plan for you. He works it out. Not you work it out. He works it out. Let me show you. Psalm 57 verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose, his plan for me. You're like, God, show me the plan and then I'll become a part of it if it's cool enough. God says, the plan is to make disciples, to make a people that look like me. Are you a part of it? And when you say, God, I want to be a part of your plan, God says, right, now I can use you. And in the journey of making disciples, I'll help you find the specific thing that I made you for. And that's an extraordinary invitation. We join men and women of the Bible who all got to be a part of that phenomenal plan. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for who you are in our life. I thank you, Father God, that you are absolutely faithful. That God, you are so on our side when we want to give our lives to making disciples, to helping other people in their journey of growing in intimacy and connection, of looking like Jesus. When we give our life to that, Father, you, you, the grace and the resources of heaven become ours. And you begin to work your plan out for our lives. Thank you for the invitation you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.